0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. If you take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of James, James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Today we are continuing our series called Holy Transform. We're walking verse by verse, through the little New Testament book of James, holy transformed. And it's my prayer that God will use this little book to transform my heart, and I'm praying the same thing for you. Uh, it's amazing what God can do even in 14 weeks. Last week, or two weeks ago, I spoke on James chapter one, where I gave a kind of a summary, and introductory sermon about suffering. Uh, last week, Pastor Mike spoke also from James chapter one, the last half about God's word. And so, really, both of those from chapter one are introductory. They kind of touch on everything else in the book of James. Most of our spiritual transformation takes place not when things are going great, but usually when we're walking in suffering. All of our spiritual transformation connects back to the word of God. And so, if you missed either one of those messages, I trust you'll go back and check it out on the podcast, on the app, uh, or on the series page at Bible Center Church com. Well, today we're going to jump into really the meat of the book. We're going to start the meat of the book. And throughout this book, James gives 12 different lessons, 12 different areas where you and I need to be transformed more into the image of Jesus. And let me say, James gets into our business. He doesn't mince words. He gets right down to To business. This first area that we see is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and it's this topic of favoritism or discrimination or prejudice or being a respecter of persons. All really easy things for us to talk about uh, in this day and age, no doubt. But let's go ahead and dive in and see what God's word says. James chapter 2, and verse 1 My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Now, where do you think James learned this? Obviously, James learned this from Jesus. He is Jesus's half-brother. He saw it in Jesus's life. He heard it in Jesus's teaching. We see some of these similar teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And so that brings us to today's big idea. Here's the big idea of today's message. There's no room for favoritism in God's family. There's no room for favoritism in God's family. Back in chapter one, verse 27, Pastor Mike briefly touched on the topic of worldliness last week And one of the reasons he briefly touched on it is because James just briefly mentions it in passing in chapter one. You see, he's not gonna start really defining worldliness until you get into James chapter two. In the New Testament, worldliness has very little to do with our brand of blue jeans, with the style of our hair, the model of our car, the movie we went to see with our family last weekend, the cigar someone may or may not smoke, uh, the tattoo that someone may or may not have, often in our part of the world, we hear those things as the sign of worldliness. And we'll get to some of that later on, but James here right out the gate starts with, hey, you wanna know what worldliness is? It's the spirit of favoritism the spirit of putting one person above the other just because of what you can get from them. There's no room for favoritism in God's family. Now, if you're taking notes or if you're following along on the app, the, the word for favoritism here, literally in the Greek, means to receive according to the face to receive according to the face. In other words, it means to receive someone based upon their appearance. It might be their skin color. It might be their wealth. It might be their family name. It might be their weight or their attractiveness or some other characteristic. James says to do this is worldliness at its core. There's no room for worldliness or for favoritism in God's family. Now, let's ask ourselves for a moment this question. Do we, do we ever, in 2022, struggle with favoritism? Right, maybe already you're thinking to yourself, like, Matt, why do I need this message? Like, why did I even come to this message? I could have been volunteering somewhere else. I, I could have slept in this morning. Why do I need this message? And certainly, I don't wanna be the Holy Spirit in your life, I can't be. But I wanna invite you to ask yourself these questions. Am I ever tempted to show favoritism towards somebody at work, at church, or in my neighborhood? And am I ever tempted to consciously or subconsciously ignore someone at work, in my church, or in my neighborhood? Is there someone at church that you refuse to welcome or purposely avoid? Student, if you go to GW, do you purposely shun a capital student in youth group? If you're a Crosslands Christian school student, do you purposely shun a South Charleston student or vice versa? If you're a Bible center school family, do you purposely or unconsciously shun someone who maybe sends their kids to public school or is a homeschool family? How about with your own children? Are you ever tempted to play favorites with your own children? Now our kids are always gonna tell us that we play favorites right? Like, we did it to our parents, they do it to us. It's just part of the pecking order of life, right? If one kid gets in trouble, why do you always play favorites? I'm not talking about that sort of thing. But what I am asking you to do today is honestly, humbly, ask yourself the question, is there any part of this text, any part of this, that I need, that God brought me here today to hear There's no room for favoritism in God's family. So how do we fight our favoritism? Well, this text, these aren't my words. These are God's words. This text quickly gives us eight ways to fight it. So if you wanna take notes or follow along, here are eight ways to fight your favoritism. Then we'll be done. Number one, remember the splendor and authority of King Jesus. Remember the splendor and authority of King Jesus. Jesus. Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Obviously here with the idea of brothers and sisters, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to us. And there's a part of the characteristics of Jesus. There's an attribute of Jesus that he wants us to know, and that is the glory of Jesus. I've read this this verse, I've read this chapter over and over again in my Bible reading over the years, and I don't know why until this week, it never really stood out to me that he uses this unique title for Jesus, not just the Lord Jesus Christ, but the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The reason he does that is James knows that there's a number of people in his congregation who are familiar with the Old Testament. There are a lot of Jewish believers in his congregation. And so the Jewish believers would have known the Old Testament references to the Lord of glory. You can Google that sometime. Throughout the Old Testament, it mentions the Lord of glory. One part of the idea of the Lord of glory just refers to the the splendor of God, the, the brightness, the light that comes around the presence of God when God would come down and meet in the tabernacle or the temple, we call that the Shekinah glory of God. And so that's what James is connecting here. James is saying that God who came down and met in the tabernacle and the temple and that people could hardly stand to see, that was Jesus, that was Jesus pre-incarnate. That was Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Another aspect to this word glory refers to authority, refers to weight, it refers to honor. For instance, when a judge walks into a room, someone will say, all rise for judge so-and-so. Why do we rise? Why do we get up? Well, the reason is, is because that man or woman deserves respect. They deserve honor. And so that's this Greek word here. He's saying that Jesus is glorious. Jesus deserves our honor. Now think with me in context for just a moment. Why would James need to tell his congregation this so early on this subject? Well, the reason is they were giving glory and honor to people who really didn't deserve it, or they were giving more honor and glory than they should have. So now the New Testament teaches us that we as Christians are to be respectful, honorable people. James says, honor all men, fear God, honor the king. So if they could honor the king, fear God, and be respectful in the first century, when Nero was their emperor, certainly, no matter your political persuasion, certainly, we can at least be respectful, honorable citizens in 2022. So we are to be honorable in that way, but but James is telling us, be careful how much glory you give to human beings. Have you ever been tempted to give a human being more glory than they deserve? You ever been tempted to do that? I have. I've shared before about the first time I met Lynn Swan. Right, as a Steelers fan, I'm in Swickley, Pennsylvania, the YMCA. I'm walking out. There's this big old guy, like three times my size, opens the door, and I just say, "Thank you, sir." And I look up, and I take a double take, and I look right at him, and I say the most intelligent thing I've ever said in my life: "You're Lynn Swan." <laughs> And he says, last time I checked, right? So we have these heroes and that's just part of life, I guess. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I did it again. Like I'm preparing for this sermon, okay? I'm preparing for this text and I did it again, all right? So just to show the brokenness of your lead pastor, I am I'm, um, taking a class and one of my heroes, you know, pastors have heroes too, And so one of the heroes in our profession, kind of a a Yoda to pastors along the way, uh, is gonna be teaching the class. And so I get on this Zoom call and I wanna make sure I'm there early, right? I don't want the guy from West Virginia to be the the guy who's on there late. Well, come to find out I'm the first one on the call. And so my Zoom comes up and there's this teacher. Like I've read about him, I've I've listened to his sermons, I've seen him in big conferences, but never actually like talked to him. And he's the only other person on the Zoom call. And I said again, one of the most intelligent things I've ever said, I can't believe I said this. I said, uh, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) I don't know why I said that, but I said that. He goes, yeah, Matt, it's happening. Welcome to the class. Um, So we, we do that. There's something within us, right? And James is warning us. He says, be careful. There's only one king in town. It is King Jesus. This is the point of James 2 and verse 7. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong. We'll talk about that blaspheming a little bit later. The point being, Jesus's name is noble. In verse eight, we see Jesus is royal. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we fight our favoritism? Number one, remember the splendor and authority of King Jesus. Number two, How can we fight our favoritism? Remember the value of every human being, regardless of their wealth, status, family, appearance, or ethnicity. Remember the value of every human being. Notice verse two. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Our world is always assessing people. James knows that, you know that. All the way back from kindergarten, right? We were There was a pecking order. Even on the kickball team, there was a pecking order. Uh, There was a a pecking order in in high school, in college. There's this certain sense where people are singled out and favorites are made. Sometimes it's because of their ability, sometimes it's not. Uh, Maybe you experience some favoritism at work or in your community. But there's one place in the world where favoritism is not supposed to exist. There's one place in the world that, that James is saying, this is not supposed to be the case. That's in church. When we come in church, all ground is level at the foot of the cross, and James is saying, no, this is not supposed to be here. Are there qualifications for church leadership? Absolutely. Are there qualifications or beliefs that must be believed for membership in the scriptures? Absolutely, for church membership. That's not what he's talking about here. But he's talking about people coming into the worship gathering and making sure every person feels welcomed regardless of their sinful past, regardless of mistakes they've made, regardless of their family name, their wealth, their poverty, and so forth. Back in chapter one, verses nine and 10, we saw a couple weeks ago that James identifies that there there were wealthy people in his congregation and there were not so wealthy people in his congregation. And he points out, this is a beautiful thing. So that wasn't the problem. The problem was that they were reserved, they'd gotten to the place that they were reserving seats for the honorable people in town and telling the people who weren't so honorable to sit in the floor. They'd gotten to that place. Now, I've never visited a church that had devolved to that position, but I have been to some places. You ever been to one of those churches where they they, they reserve pews, right? I'm sure it means well, and I don't want to throw take too many pot shots, but you know where families can like buy the pew. If you've ever been to one of those churches, it's kind of, find, kind of hard to find a place to sit, right? Like I walk in, I'm like looking for the cheap seats, you know, like where's the loser section? Um, because some of these seats are taken, right? People have bought them and they've reserved them and they've saved them. James says, these are not my words. Back in verse four, James says, this is the spirit of evil. Not my words, James says it's evil. At best, as Christians, this reveals a fractured heart. James says don't play favorites. Remember the value of every human being, regardless of their wealth, status, family appearance, or ethnicity. Number three, how do we fight our favoritism? Remember the various kinds of people God calls into his family. Remember the various kinds of people God calls into his family family. Notice verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? There's a spiritual aspect of verse 5, and then there's a physical aspect. Let's talk about the spiritual aspect for just a moment. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus even went on to say that nobody gets into heaven unless they have the heart of a little child. So there's this sense in which we can't even become Christian until we are poor spiritually. In other words, somebody who doesn't think they need a Savior, why would they turn to Jesus? But we turn to Jesus when we realize we are spiritually poor. Jesus used the illustration of a doctor. I see some healthcare professionals in here today. Jesus used the illustration of a doctor. He said, you're not gonna go to the doctor, we're not gonna go to the ER, essentially, unless you are dangerously sick. And Jesus said, you're not gonna come to me unless you are dangerously sinful. So see yourself for what you are. The gospel is the good news that God created you. Yes, just as he wanted you to be. But unfortunately, you are broken, just as I am broken by sin. We've chosen our own way. It's in our spiritual DNA. All of us are sinners. But Jesus came to save all things. Jesus saves John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, he rose again the third day. And you, right there where you sit, can ask Jesus to be the Lord and savior of your life today. Just this past week, I heard news of, of someone who, who has, has just prayed to receive Christ after the service. They're growing in Christ and getting into our groups. I want that for you. You can trust Jesus today right there where you sit. But Christian, verse five has, some, has a couple nuggets for us. In verse five, for instance, he says that God has chosen us for himself. That's not the emphasis of this chapter, but let's not also blow over it. The word chosen is used in verse five. If anything, let's know this. The sheep never seek the shepherd. The shepherd always seek the sheep. And this is intended to encourage us, but it's also intended to humble us in the context of favoritism. In other words, we didn't come to Jesus because we were smarter than the person next to us. We came to Jesus by his grace. You can read all about that grace in Ephesians chapter one. Another nugget that we see in verse five is is the spirit, the physically poor aspect of Christianity. We don't want to make everything so spiritual that we miss the intended meaning of the text. James is saying, he's pointing out to his congregation, don't you forget that Christianity began as a poor man's religion. Don't, Don't forget that, right? These were mostly, by and large, poor fishermen who took the message of Jesus to the world. And so most of us in here today are rich compared to the world's standards. So this is for all of us, Let us not forget that God didn't just come for the middle and upper class. God came for the world. And we see that throughout history. We even see that taking place uh, south of the equator, even now. Remember the value of every human being. Remember the various kinds of people God calls into his family. I remember how important it was that our high school basketball team quickly learned that we weren't as awesome as we thought we were, right? You ever seen one of those teams? Maybe you're seeing it now. You've seen it last week, this past weekend in football. Maybe a team that thinks they're really, really awesome, and then they just get crushed. Well, that was us in high school. We thought our team was awesome. My junior year, we went 18 and 0. We'd played a lot of good, some good competition. We were a good ball team. We have perfectly expected to go into our senior year undefeated as well. And so we went into our senior year. We're winning games, winning games. We really thought we couldn't be beat. Well, there was this uh, little Christian school down in Monroe County that came to our gym. It was a home game. And uh, I can remember laughing, like not out loud, but just kind of under my breath laughing at this team. They wore sweatpants. Their Christian school, I guess, didn't let them wear like shorts. So we're like, ah, the sweatpants school. Okay. And then, and then like, they're all their names, but two were their last name was Spencer. So if you went to that school, if your last name was Spencer, hopefully this is encouraging story to you because I hate talking about it. Um, but they, they showed up and even their water boy was named Spencer. They were all little. And we thought, you know, really like who put this schedule on the calendar? You know, we want to play the big teams, right? We want to show these, some of these other public schools how, how good we are. Why are we playing this little Christian school? So the game started, and they had the funkiest offense. They, they all stood around, all five of them stood around the three-point line, right? And they, I don't think the whole game, I don't think they ever shot inside the three-point line. They just had these funky plays that they would run outside the three-point line and shoot and shoot and shoot. Come to find out, they crushed us by double digits. I can still remember, it'll be a core memory in my mind until I'm like in my 90s. I I, I remember walking back in the locker room thinking, what just happened? Like we didn't know what to do to stop them. They weren't playing traditional basketball. So come to find out their whole goal that year was to beat our school. Their whole goal was to make the undefeated team for two years no longer undefeated. And so they practiced and practiced and practiced late into the night and they practiced nothing but three point shots because they said we're either gonna beat them bad Or this isn't gonna work. Unfortunately, it worked. And we quickly realized how awesome we weren't. One of the greatest days of your spiritual life is to realize how awesome you're not. I love you, but part of my job description is to tell you you're not awesome. You're not awesome. You're really not. I'm not either. Jesus is awesome. And so when we realize that God has brought together a bunch of people who aren't awesome to worship a savior who is, all of a sudden favoritism tends to fade away. Remember the various kinds of people God calls into his family. Number four, remember the unique temptations and brokenness of every person. Remember the unique temptations and brokenness of every person. Look with me in verse six. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Now, here in verse six, and if you want to look ahead to verse seven, James is asking a series of questions that all demand a yes answer. He's telling us, telling the early church, that remember, it is the, the rich who are exploiting you, they're the ones who are suing you, having you persecuted. We know from history and in the context of the Bible that initially it was the rich Jews who persecuted the early church. Saul of Tarsus was one of those rich Jews. Later in the first century and into the second century, it became the wealthy Romans who felt that Christianity was a threat to the Republic. And so it became wealthy Romans who persecuted the Christians. Either way, what Paul or what James is trying to communicate here is really pragmatic, but he's just kind of stating the obvious. He's not saying that rich people are bad and poor people are good. He's like, in your context, do you realize what you're doing? You are buttering up people who are only coming into your congregation to spy you out for persecution. He's like, it's not doing you any good and it's not doing them any good. So stop it. Essentially, he's saying, everybody puts their pants on the same way, one leg at a time, or their toga on, one leg at a time. So just remember this, Remember the unique temptations and brokenness of every person who comes into your church. Number five, how do we fight our favoritism? Actively love your neighbor as you actively love yourself. Actively love your neighbor as you actively love yourself. Verse eight, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right this is the centerpiece of James's and Jesus's theology. Love your neighbor as yourself. We first see this in Leviticus 19, but Jesus repeats it in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22, the importance of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Why does James only mention the second part? Only loving our neighbors as ourselves. Why does he not mention the first part Well, most scholars believe that what Jesus was saying is what James is saying. The way we love God is by loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's impossible to love God without loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now look with me in verse eight there again for a moment. Love your neighbor, those two words, as yourself. I've got a question for you. Is it okay for you to take care of yourself? Is it okay for you to take your care of yourself? He uses the phrase, love as yourself. Is that okay? Well, we talked about that this past summer, and we won't talk about it just for another second. Obviously, that's in the scriptures. God is not telling you to somehow forget and not take care of yourself. Uh, Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus took naps. Uh, Jesus got away for days uh, to spend time with his father, Uh, Jesus, on one occasion at least, was walking through a garden with his disciples and his disciples were hungry. But it was the Sabbath and they weren't supposed to pick any crops on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, pick some crops. The Sabbath, you weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. Jesus took care of not only of himself, but Jesus took care of his disciples. So what James is saying here is what Jesus is saying. It's not that somehow you're supposed to like not take care of yourself, It's just expand the level of care to others. Instead of just caring for yourself, expand that to include your neighbors. When we begin to love others as we want loved ourselves, isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Favoritism goes away. Actively love your neighbor as you actively love yourself. Number six, how can we fight our favoritism? Ask God to show you any areas where you might be practicing favoritism without realizing it and repent. Ask God to show you any areas where you might be practicing favoritism without realizing it and repent. Let's look at our text, verse nine. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers for whoever. Now, this verse 10 is a verse we've, some of us have heard and used a lot when we're trying to talk about the gospel, but in context, he's talking about favoritism. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is talking about favoritism. He is saying it's good that you don't commit adultery. By the way, don't commit adultery. It is good that you don't murder. By the way, don't murder. But he's saying don't think that it's okay to then play favorites, to inappropriately discriminate, to to hold people outside of the, the worship gathering just because you don't like them or because they don't believe like you do or even because they're an unbeliever. James says, no, that's, that's not the way of Jesus. Now, there's something I learned this week that I didn't really, hadn't really sunk in until this week, and that is that the early church was really good at using Bible verses out of context To justify their theological positions, just like sometimes we are. For instance, I read this week that what was most likely happening in James's church was that people had theological reasons for honoring the rich and powerful in their community. They probably had theological reasons. We see this all the way back in the book of Job. Remember Job's friends? They had theological reasons. They thought God honored, the the good people were honored with riches, and that bad people were cursed with suffering. And that thinking had permeated even the New Testament church. Most likely, that's what's going on behind the scenes in the book of James. So if we were to interview somebody and say, hey, why are you giving the front row uh, just to the, the rich people? Why are we giving the front row just to the rich people? They would say, well, in the Bible, Abraham was blessed of God, and he was wealthy. Isaac was blessed of God and he was wealthy. Jacob was blessed of God and he was wealthy. Therefore, here's the leap it's always the therefore that gets us in trouble. Therefore, we're going to, we have a theological reason for doing this. And so James comes along just like Jesus did. Jesus was constantly going for the theological juggler vein. Some of these folks really thought they were doing God's service, they really did by excluding whole groups of people. They thought they were doing the right thing. Here's the question. Could it be possible that there's anyone in your life you are excluding, showing favoritism against, discriminating against, because you think you have a theological reason, but really you don't? You know, the church... Over the last 2,000 years, the very fact that we have existed as a church for 2,000 years, the body of Christ, is evidence of God's grace. Because we would have messed it up a long time ago. We've tried our hardest to mess it up, but God in his mercy has allowed it to continue. Think with me about different uh, sections, segments of history, where there were people who were marginalized from the church because of the color of their skin. There have been people who've been marginalized in the church because of perhaps their gender or perhaps their economic status or social status. And yet the church of Jesus Christ marches forward. I don't know if you are. I'm not gonna even say you definitely are. I'm just asking you to be open. Is there anyone you are using a Bible verse out of context to justify discriminating against. God tells us in his word, that's not good. How can we fight our favoritism? Number seven, always keep your own judgment day in the back of your mind. Always keep your own judgment day in the back of your mind. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The words speak and act here are emphatic. They're the first words in the the sentence in the original. And James is saying, you're gonna be judged based on two things. Christian, you're gonna be judged on your words, and you're going to be judged on your actions. Now, this judgment is not a judgment for heaven or hell. This judgment's the ones Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment for reward, But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, Jesus said that somehow we as Jesus' followers, our words are going to be susceptible for judgment. In some way that I don't understand, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 tells us that even our actions are susceptible for judgment. And so James is trying to prepare his church for Judgment Day. He says, make sure that you are are familiar with the law that brings freedom. Some of your translations say in verse 12, the law of liberty. Make sure you're familiar with the law of liberty or the law of freedom because that's the measure of your judgment. If you've ever taken a test, uh, you probably wanna get the cliff notes of, of whatever you're gonna be tested over. You wanna have the note. You wanna make sure that you're ready, a cheat sheet perhaps, not to use as cheating, but you know, before the test, make sure you know the material. If you need a cheat sheet, so to speak, of what you'll be judged on, go back and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's what most scholars believe James is talking about is the law of liberty. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount The rest in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit expounding on the Sermon on the Mount. So may we be a people who are transformed now and not be surprised on judgment day. Always keep your own judgment day in the back of your mind. So much of the Sermon on the Mount deals with how we treat other people. Number eight, and finally, lastly, how do we fight our favoritism? Love people more than you love being right. Love people more than you love being right. Notice verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I have a question for you. On judgment day, we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff today. On judgment day, how many of you, if you don't mind raising your hand, how many of you hope to receive mercy? My hand is raised. Anybody else? Two or three of you? Okay, yeah. Most of us, yeah. All of us, we want to receive mercy. I always get a kick out of somebody who says, I I want God to treat me fairly. I'm like, I don't want God to treat me fairly. I want mercy, right? I want mercy. So if we want mercy, why is it do we struggle showing mercy to other people? I mean, really? James is saying here, the half-brother of Jesus if you don't show mercy to others here, you will not receive mercy on judgment day. I love where we live. I was born and raised here. I love this area of the world. But there's something unique. It's unique in this part of the world. It seems as though there's almost this justification for why we're allowed to judge other people who don't believe like us. Now, if this isn't you, or if you don't know about anybody like this, you can ignore this part of the sermon. But some of you are like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I have heard it. Sometimes I'll ask, now that I've been here now almost six years, I'll ask, I'll say, why do you think you have the right to do that? And almost inevitably, somebody wants to quote me a Bible verse. Usually it's John 1.14. Because John 1.14 says this, Jesus is full of grace and what? Truth grace and truth. Absolutely. We believe the Bible. We're people of grace and truth. But what I find more times than not is we use verses like that to justify why we can somehow inappropriately judge others. Now, you believe the authority of God's word, and I believe the authority of God's word. So let's look at verse 13 again. This isn't. We'll put it on the screen. This isn't me saying this. Notice the last four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're going to put those verses, like grace and truth, John 1, 14, do not make truth font size 500 and truth font size two. Please don't do that. Yes, have them both on the page. But whatever font size you use, make sure mercy and grace are bigger font size in grace and truth, you say, well, Matt, how do you say that? Right here, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. If this next week, if you have a chance to show judgment or mercy, show mercy. If you have a chance to write somebody off or to give them another chance, show mercy. If you have a chance to unleash your tongue and share exactly how you feel or to hold your tongue, show mercy. If you have a chance to pick a fight or to let it go, show mercy. If you have a a, a questionable issue in the scriptures and you're just not quite sure which way to go, choose mercy. Because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. How can we fight our favoritism? Remember the splendor and authority of King Jesus. Remember the value of every human being. Remember the various kinds of people God calls into his family. Remember the unique brokenness of every person. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Ask God to show you ways where you might be practicing favoritism without knowing it. Always keep your own judgment day in the back of your mind and love people more than you love being right. You say, Matt, why? It's because there's no room for favoritism in God's family. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.